Well, if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6. And as you turn to 2 Samuel, I want you to think about God's position. Who is our God? Who, who is he? And as, as you think about who our God is, hopefully, hopefully words about his character come to your mind. Maybe you think about his love. Maybe you think about his, his sovereignty. Maybe you think about his holiness. Maybe you think about the fact that he knows everything. Maybe you think about the fact that he is in control of everything. And I, I think that we need to start there by meditating, at least for a while, on who our God is. And I, I, I think our God is described as the creator. He is described as the sustainer. Through him, everything holds together. He rules over everything. And yet you look at how great our God, how transcendent he is. And what does God choose to do with us? Even though he is so transcendent, he chooses to initiate a relationship with human beings. God, the transcendent one. The one who we could never truly even come close to being like, chooses to enter into a relationship with you and I. There's a very real sense in which we are familiar with God. He is relatable in a sense with us. He is, he is reachable. And yet... It's very easy for you and I, it's very easy for the world around us to, to know that God is reachable, that God is close, and allow that to, in a very negative way, impact how you and I worship our God. And I'm not talking about just how we worship when we gather corporately, but even how we live our lives in holiness and purity and faith and submission to his word. And so as David's story unfolds, it's, it shouldn't really shock us that because it's so easy for you and I to, to forsake our transcendent God and to act as if we are equals with him, that first Samuel begins and gives us a pretty clear lesson with the Philistines and then with Israel in first Samuel chapter five and then first Samuel chapter six that God is holy and that our relationship to him then must be drastically different. It must demonstrate our awe and our respect and our love for our God. Because of the ease with which your heart and my heart forsakes God and begins to pursue our own way, our own understanding, 2 Samuel chapter 6 once again brings this important topic to our attention. 
that God is holy. And because he is holy, you and I must approach him with reverence and awe and respect. I think that the big idea is that God is with us, but that God's reachability should generate my reverence. Yes, God is reachable. You can have a relationship with him. But it shouldn't breed complacency. It shouldn't breed this familiarity that is flippant. It should breed, it should generate my reverence, my respect, my adoration for my great God. If you would take your Bibles with me and let's read 2 Samuel chapter 6 before we dive into the passage. 2 Samuel chapter 6. Again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose, went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, which was uh, sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments, of fir wood, on harps, on stringed instruments, and tambourines, and sistrums, and all on cymbals. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error. And he died there before the ark of God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. And he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David. But David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Then David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. Now as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle and David that David had erected for it. Then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Then he distributed among all the people, among the whole multitude of Israel, 
both the women and the men, to everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. So all the people departed, everyone, to his house. Then David returned to bless his household. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today and covering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants. As one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. So David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of Israel, over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord, and I will be even more undignified than this, and will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservants of whom you have spoken, by them I will be held in honor. Therefore, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your holiness. We thank you for the, the reminders that, yes, you are close. You have a desire to be with us and to be known by us. And you even know us more intimately than any other person could know us. We pray that those truths would not lead us to complacency or to a familiarity that is not reverential and awe-inspiring, but that it would lead us to a place where we realize that you are holy, that you are completely other than us, and that you deserve our whole and undivided devotion and love. We pray that that would be our heart's desire today. In your name we pray. Amen. The passage really begins by describing a wrong response. And as, as the passage begins, you may be asking, well, what's the big deal? Like, the ark's been for 20 years in this city. Why does David care if it comes now? Like, it's been fine where it has been. I think the answer really deals with, what is Israel? Israel is a monarchy, yes, but more importantly, Israel is a theocracy. Israel is ruled by God through its vice-regent, King David. And Israel has finally established Zion. They have Jerusalem. David has fulfilled that promise that in the book of Judges was not possible, in the book of Joshua it was not possible for them to follow the Lord in faithful obedience and accomplish that task. He's built himself a house. And David realizes that as the center of government, it was right and it was fitting and it was good for God to dwell in the capital city. Because it demonstrated to everybody that lived there, everybody that came there, that God is ultimately the person who David is serving. David has lived a life of faith. He's demonstrated this. Chapter 5 demonstrates that really well. Chapter 7 is going to demonstrate that really well. And so David wants it to be a public, visible demonstration that God is the one whom we serve. God is the one who we pursue in faith. And so it's a good desire. And it demonstrates a good thing. It demonstrates the fact that God is 
is with his people and that he's able to be known by his people. And so David tells them to go and bring the ark to where he is. And Israel approaches the transportation of the ark of God very flippantly. Look at verse 6, or chapter 1 of verse 6. Again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. And what do they do as they go up to get this? So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ohio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. If you don't have a full understanding of how Israel was supposed to transport the ark of the Lord, you might think this is no big deal. They got a new cart. That's respectful. Right? I mean, they didn't go get some, you know, used old cart that was half broken down. I mean, they built a new cart. God has given very clear instructions that as his ark is moved, the Levites are supposed to do so. And the Levites are not supposed to use a cart. They're supposed to use poles to move his ark. It's, the nation has already started off in a really bad way. They're not demonstrating through their actions the holiness and the reverence that they should to their God. And the passage moves on, and God is holy, and he's supposed to be treated with holiness. And I think that, really, verse 2 is hinting at that truth. Look at how they refer to this ark. They bring up the ark of God, whose name is called, by the name the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim. The text is emphasizing God's holiness, God's otherness from the nation. That he is worthy of respect. He is worthy of our awe. And that's not what you see the nation responding with. And as the nation takes this ark, they are celebrating, they are rejoicing in their God. It's, it's really kind of ironic that they would so joyfully rejoice in their great God and yet demonstrate such a lack of reverence and respect for him in the midst of what demonstrates that they understood some things about who their God is. And they brought it up out of the house of Abinab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments, of fir wood and on harps, on stringed instruments, and on tambourines, on sistrums, and on cymbals. This is exciting. This is the type of worship that you and I want to be part of, Right? Not stuff that's muffled by masks, but it's loud and like you feel the ground like trembling a little bit because 
It's loud. People are excited about who their God is. And yet there's a problem. And, and as they move, Uzzah commits a grave infraction against the Lord. And he doesn't mean it as a means to disrespect God and fail to show him the reverence that he is due. But as the cart is going down, oxen stumble, and as the oxen stumble, Uzzah is trying to prevent the ark from crashing to the floor, and he stretches out his hand, and he simply touches it to stable it so it doesn't fall down. And what happens? God's anger is poured out on him. And it's really interesting, as you study this concept of God's anger really coming out like this, it's like no other illustration in which God's anger is poured out on an individual like this. There's lots of illustrations of God's anger boiling up and coming out upon the nation because of their communal sin. But God takes this seriously. God doesn't appreciate how they have approached him in worship because they're not obeying him. They're not living in holiness. They're not walking by faith. And it's the same thing that you and I so often struggle with, right? Because really, responding in reverence and awe and respect to our great God isn't something that we primarily do on Sundays when we gather corporately. That's the primary time when you and I demonstrate our, our reverence and our awe and our respect for our great God. We're really missing a whole lot. Because, you know, if you come to church a lot and you stay and talk a lot, you maybe spend, what, eight hours here a week? And then you've got 24 hours a day or six other days plus another 16 hours that you're living elsewhere. So how we respond in reverence and respect and awe is really not judged by how loud we sing or how well we pay attention to the music. Primarily how that's judged is by what your life looks like on the other days of the week? Are you pursuing obedience to Christ? Does your life mirror the faithfulness that we've seen in so many of the narratives of David's life? Do you rely on who your God is so much that you would be willing to say, I'm not going to take judgment into my hand. I'm going to let God judge this man. And then when God finally judges the situation, your response is to lament that the Lord's anointed has died. That's how well David walks by faith. Yeah, he's had his ups and downs. But David is pursuing after God's heart. He's walking by faith. He's living in reverence and awe to our God. Unless you think that David is, is perfect, though, what's David's response to all this? David sees a situation, and he responds by questioning God's judgment. 
And David became angry because the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. And he called the name of that place Perez Uzzah, outbreak against Uzzah, to this day. And he, and he goes on, and if you remember, why is David wanting to move the ark? It's because the ark demonstrates that God is present. And the ark coming to the capital would demonstrate to the entire nation that this is what we are pursuing with our entire being as a nation. We are submitting ourselves under the authority of our God. David becomes discouraged. David becomes angry with God as he watches God respond to Uzzah's sin. He's like, forget it. How can I possibly bring the ark now up to where I live? How can I possibly have a, a visual reminder constantly of the fact that God dwells with me? And that God has a desire to bless me. So once again, David throws his hands up in the air and he's like, I don't know, stuff it in somebody's house. And they find Obed-Edom's house and they stuff it in there and David leaves. Goes back to Jerusalem. You know what? What's been modeled for us is a wrong response to the holiness of our God. It really is a model of, you know, really a, a worship type setting where how they transport the ark, but we actually see David modeling for us for three months this misunderstanding that he's living out for three months. He's not walking by faith for those three months. He's not trusting God. That's really where the danger for us lies more so than what we do on Sunday. It's a lot more temptation to to not approach God in reverence and awe as you're facing that trial. When the kids are all screaming and life is not going the way it's supposed to, when that work deal has fallen through, when the workers that you work with are just not pulling their weights, or when that project that you're working on seems to just completely fall apart, how do we respond? Does our life demonstrate holiness? Does it demonstrate, I trust that God is in control of this whole situation. I'm going to choose to live by faith. What's been modeled up to this point is a wrong response. It is what you and I ought to flee. Because it doesn't point the awe and glory that our lives should demonstrate about who our Savior is. The text moves on, though, and it gives us a right response. After three months, David hears that Obed-Edom has been blessed. And all that he has has been blessed. Why? Because of God's presence. God is present with Obed-Edom. And as God is present there for those three months, God is blessing him, and David hears about it. And David now chooses to reconsider the choices that he made 
and the previous verses where he throws his hands up and he goes, how in the world can I bring this thing into my place? He moves on. What does he do? He follows the Lord's instructions. Second Samuel chapter 6 doesn't really give us the details of what all that looked like. But if you're going to the, the account in Chronicles that describes the situation, it makes it very clear that David the second time follows God's instruction. And what he does is he gets the Levites and he gets the Poles. And as they begin their journey and it's successful and nobody's died, what does he do? He's like, let's offer a couple of sacrifices. Let's worship our God because he really does want to be with us. But as, as he's with us, he wants us to be living in obedience. He wants us to be living in faithfulness to who he is. And so the, the text doesn't give us all the information, but verse 13, And so it was when those buried in the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, uh, it's successful. Then he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Then David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with, with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. It's, it's the same loudness of worship that you experienced earlier. They are rejoicing in who their God is. God is holy. God is completely other. And he is deserving of and worthy of whatever he says he is deserving of and worthy of. And so David realizes God's otherness. He realizes that God is transcendent, that God is outside of his level, outside of his orbit. There's nothing that allows him to be flippant in how he approaches and how he worships God. And so a healthy respect will bring the Lord's blessing. As they do this, what happens when they when they arrive at the city? We're going to come back to verse 16 in just a little bit, but what happens when they enter the city? Michael, his wife, comes and rebukes him, but just skip over that for just a second. So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. Then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And what does he do? What does he do? He blesses the people. Why? Because God is present. God is leading. And as God is present and as God leads and as the people submit to God, what is the natural consequence of obedience and faithfulness to God? It's blessing. Not necessarily financial, not necessarily physical, but it's God's blessing. It's God's favor. And so what does David do? Then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Verse 18. And when David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. It's not his blessing. It's God's blessing. Why? Because God has been approached with the reverence and the awe and the respect that he is due. And as a result... It's not only Obed-Edom who's going to be blessed, it's the people who are going to be blessed. Why? Because they pursued obedience and faithfulness to their God. David returns in obedience and the Lord provides safety. 
it's, it's really unfortunate because the reminder of the consequences of disobedience, of faithlessness, returns as we near the end of the passage. Look back once again at verse 16. Michael despises David for his exuberant worship. Now as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. It's really fun. Go and do a, a word study on this idea of despised as we've, we've seen it used in 1 Samuel and now 2 Samuel. And what do you find out? Every time somebody's despising somebody, it's a really bad thing. It's a really bad thing. And who is she despising? She's despising the Lord's anointed. Why? Because he is exuberantly worshiping the Lord. So the passage continues to move forward, and as it do so, Michael rejects the blessing and accuses him of indecency. David's returning home, okay? She sees him, she despises him, he blesses the people, he provides them with, with physical blessing. That's not, I don't think, the, the primary emphasis of verse 18 where it talks about he's blessing them in the name of the Lord of hosts. But he provides them with, with raisins. He provides them with um, bread and a piece of meat. And they all depart. And David returns. What's he going to go do at home? God is present. God is with them. What do you expect from the text? You expect that David's home will be blessed. David returns to bless his own home, and what happens? Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids and his servants, as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Whoa. Not only has she despised the Lord's anointed, now what God looked at and he declares to be good and worthy of his blessing... She says is shameless. And what is David's response? David's response is to turn to God and say, I'm going to continue to honor him. And if you think that that makes me shameful, that's just too bad. Because I'm going to continue to pursue respect and reverence and the majesty of my God. Look at verse 21. It was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord, and I will be even more undignified than this. I will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservants of whom you have spoken, by them I will be held in honor. Says, I'm going to choose to pursue the reverence and awe and respect and obedience that God deserves regardless of what those around me think. I think that's something that you and I need to be reminded of so often. 
because culture continually points us in a direction. It says this is what you should pursue. This is where you should be going. This is where you should be heading. And all too often what society at large around us is pointing us to is in direct disobedience to what God directs us to and calls us to. And David looks at his wife and he says, this is not what I've been called to. I've been called to reverence. I've been called to awe and respect of my God. And if that means that in your eyes, I am less of a man than I am, that's okay. Because he knows what he's pursuing. And what's going to happen in 2 Samuel chapter 7? God comes to him and tells him, you have been so obedient that I'm going to build you a house. Like, uh, David just built himself a house. And if I was king and I was going to build myself a house, I'd build it with all the specs that I wanted. You know, I'd have the balcony where I wanted it. I'd have the view that I wanted over the city of Jerusalem. I'd have the pool that I wanted. I'd have the hot tub that I wanted. And I'd have enough people to keep it clean so I don't have to do it. Right? If you were king, you would do the same thing. Like, you're not going to build a house that, you know, I kind of like this house. When God comes to him in chapter 7 and says, I'm going to build you a house. He's not talking about a house. David's content with his house. He just built the dream house. God's coming to him and saying, you have lived faithfully. I'm going to establish your family as the ruling family of Israel. God's coming to making a promise about Israel's future. Why? Because David, in the previous chapters, while he's sinned, he's sinned in this chapter. Overall, what is David pursuing? What is David seeking after and yearning for? He is yearning for a life that demonstrates the world around him that he is pursuing obedience and faithfulness to his God. It's interesting, as you look at the text, there are, there really are, uh, David rejects Michael and is willing to be more contemptible. My response produces a result, and your response produces a result as well. As we look through the text, what happens to these people? Uzzah has a horrible response to the Lord and to his holiness. And what happens to him as a result of his sinful choices? God strikes him dead. As you look later on, Obed-Edom, he might not have really had a choice, but he doesn't tell him, no, don't leave this thing here. And what happens to him? God blesses him and cares for him as the ark stays on his property. As the ark enters into the nation's capital, what happens? Israel is blessed. This is exciting demonstrates that God is present, that God is with his people, and that his people have a desire to pursue after him with their entire being. So what does God do? He blesses. David returns to his house, and what is he going to do? He's going to bless. Why? Because God is present, and God is present. He's accessible. He's reachable. He's familiar with his people, but not in a flippant way in which 
They say we're so chummy that we don't even have to, you know, follow what God says. No, David has learned to fear the Lord. He's learned to love the Lord and love what God loves, and he's pursuing obedience to that. And then Michael is judged. What's her judgment? Look at verse 23. Therefore Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. A lot of people say that it's because David completely cast aside Michael and did not have a relationship with her after this occasion. But if you look at the text, that is not there. It isn't. It doesn't say that David cast aside his wife and never talked to her again or had any relationship with her. It's reading into the text. We don't know. But I really think that God didn't allow her to have children. Why? Because of her disrespect of his holiness. I think it's God more so punishing Michael than it's David punishing Michael. If you look back, David is a man who knows that God is just and that we can live by faith and trust God to do what's right. It's really in contrast to David's character that we've seen in 1 Samuel 24 and 1 Samuel 26 to say all of a sudden he's being vindictive against Michael. In those chapters, David says God is faithful. God will do what is just and I choose to live by faith. I think what's happening here is God is judging Michael. You might disagree. That's okay. We'll still be friends. But that's what I think. How do we respond to 2 Samuel chapter 6? What is, what is your responsibility as you go 